The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let me pray. Father, you have done a wonderful thing in that you have brought the wonderful one to us. What a joy it is to hear the songs and to see the enthusiasm in the choir's faces as they sing about these things, enthusiasm that should be matched in our hearts too. We give worship to you, Lord. And I pray now that you would come and you would be Emmanuel to us in a new and in a fresh way as we look at your scripture. We consider the end of Ephesians and I want to pray that you would be pleased to inhabit this place and to move and to open up your word to us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Amen. The cantata we heard, and really this whole season, is pointing at that Emmanuel, that God with us. The scriptures say, we just heard it sung, that God took on a body and came to the earth and walked among his creation. It's a marvelous thing. But he didn't do it just to give us an example of how to live. He didn't do it just to motivate us, to inspire us. Ultimately, God came, God was born to die. Christmas is inseparably linked to Easter. He was born to be among us in the flesh so that he could go to the cross so that he could be a payment for sin, so that those who trust him could be forgiven, so that in those people he could be Emmanuel in a new, a different and more powerful way, in spirit, actually inside us. Not just walking among us, but living inside of us. We can have fellowship with God. We can approach him. We can pray and be heard. And that's really what this morning's passage is about. Praying and being heard. We're going to be finishing up Ephesians chapter 3. And essentially it's a prayer report. And it is in the Bible to teach us how to pray. And because of the cantata, I'm going to treat these passages with a little more brevity this morning. But I still hope to leave you with a clear understanding of the content of these verses. And also some motivation and guidance for your own personal prayer life. Structurally, this passage, as I said, is a prayer report. And think of it a little bit as a staircase of prayer. There are a couple of stairs that lead to a couple of landings on the way to the end goal at the end of verse 19. Full maturity in Christ, filled with the fullness of God. And I mention that up front because I'm going to skip over some of the stairs and mostly focus on the two landings, the two main points here. Both of these requests, these two landings, if you will, have something in common. Basically, both are requests for God to powerfully give us strength. Here's why. Paul looks back at what he's written. He considers all of the things that he's been teaching to us, and he considers the fallen human nature that we still each are plagued with. He looks at those two, two things and he realizes that if all the doctrine that he's been teaching, all the things that he's been talking and writing about are going to come home to our hearts and take root inside of us, 
and grip us and change us, that if that's going to happen, considering who we are, there's going to be some power that's going to be needed. Something is going to have to move us and work in us and on us. And he knows that that kind of power is not in us each individually. It's not naturally in us, but it is in God. He knows that. And so he goes to the source and he asks for it. And so should we. The main point of this passage then is you should also pray, pray, pray. God's strengthening, enabling power. You should pray, pray, pray for God's strengthening, enabling power. Power to work on you and in you. Not power that says that you can sit passively and do nothing and just let God work on you, but power that actually enables you to act and to obey and to walk in a worthy manner. That's the main point this morning. We're going to look at these two requests. I'm going to read that passage, and I'm actually going to read also the very last two verses, the great doxology at the end, verses 20 and 21. We're going to close by reading that all together. But I'll start by reading the whole passage. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen for this reason, Paul begins, just like he did back in chapter 3, verse 1, before he got off on that tangent there. Well, now here he's back online, and for this reason, given the fact of this glorious personal and corporate and cosmic gospel that he was talking about in the first few chapters, given that, given this stunning truth about your being, Paul then does something, verses 14 and 15. I bow in prayer before God the Father who has named everything, everywhere. The concept of naming in the Bible is very closely linked to authority over and sovereign control of. That which names has authority and power over the named thing. That's how it works repeatedly throughout the Bible. What we're seeing here is that God has named everything, everywhere. All of the families in heaven and on earth everything before this one who alone can claim utter dominion Paul bows his knee and says I pray Lord I ask you the first request 16 and a half of 17 God would you strengthen us with power to be Christ's home it's the first request 
God, would you strengthen us with your power to be Christ's home? Individually now, not just corporately like it was back in chapter 2, but now individually, Lord, I want you to strengthen us with power so that Christ can live in us, can make us more his home. It's the first request. And it is a request that God grant us something, that God give us a gift, something that we don't have, but that we need. This should humble us. Even in our redeemed state, we still have great need. God has to give us something that we don't have. It's another way of saying that without Him we can do nothing. It should humble us. But it also should give us hope because it also says there that God is rich in glory. He is able and He is willing to meet this need, to answer this request. So we have a need. We need to ask, but we also can ask in confidence because He's obligated, not obligated, He is inclined. He's inclined to give that to us, to give us hope. Let's look more closely, though, at the it for which Paul is praying. The it he asks for is that strengthening power. May he grant you to be strengthened with power. That's the substance of the first request. Back in chapter 1, in his first prayer report, Paul had been praying that we would know this power of God, but here he prays that the power of God would actually be applied to us, applied on us in a particular way. And look what he's concerned about. Paul is praying not about our physical bodies. He's not here concerned with our physical situation. He's not concerned with us being protected from persecution. Here he's not concerned with us being made more healthy and wealthy and powerful and influential. Those are the things that very often dominate our prayer lists. And they are good to pray for. Clearly we should. The danger arises when that's all that we pray for. It's good to note that Paul mostly prays for this kind of stuff, like he's praying for today, concerns about our inner person, our inner man, strengthened with power by the Spirit's supernatural working in the inner man, the inner person. You and I need Spirit-fortified, Spirit-strengthened, insides the inner person the heart the mind and the soul that really in the Bible are all one they're all thrown together there that's what we need his power to strengthen us in to build us up in to renew us in day by day our hearts are in a battle we are saints if you've been genuinely saved you are a saint but you are still a sinner. You're plagued still. You're troubled still by a fallen nature. It's twisted. And it's working on you inside in a twisted way. When you got saved, you were, you were delivered from the penalty of sin. And one day you will actually be fully delivered from even the presence of sin. But here now, between the time of your second birth and your death... You are in a process of being delivered from the power of sin. There is a battle going on. And the battlefield is inside. 
That's why he prays, Lord, I know they are not in themselves equipped to fight this battle. They can't win it by themselves, Lord. Give them strengthening power. Give them your power to work on them. Now, we must clearly fight this battle. We must utilize the ordinary means that we've been talking about. We must take up the scriptures. We must read them and pray over them and ask for eyes to see them and fellowship with other believers who are doing the same. But without the power of God at work in us, this will remain black ink on a white page. It will remain sterile and cold. God must come in power. We should constantly pray, Lord, give me your strengthening power to see this and to be gripped by it and changed by it so that, verse 17, what's going to follow here is an amplification of what we saw in verse 16. The end result of this strengthening of our hearts is that Christ dwells in us by faith. We'll talk about that in just a second. But right now I need to add a little clarification. Verses 16 and 17 should not be seen as two entirely separate things, like, like two parts of a, of a home renovation project where the Holy Spirit is like the workman who brings in all of his tools and comes in and renovates the place, and then he leaves, and then Jesus comes and makes us his home. It's far too separate. We shouldn't look at it like that. God the Spirit and God the Son are really both just God. There's only one God existing in three persons. We're talking about God at work. And the Bible speaks interchangeably about Christ living in us and the Spirit living in us. Ephesians speaks interchangeably about that. Furthermore, the place where they are working and living is the same place, the inner man or the heart. You see that in those verses. So we've got God living in us, working in us on the inside. 17, the first half of 17 is really an amplification or a restatement or a clarification, if you will, as to what it looks like when the Spirit is renovating our insides. It's the same request put in different words. What does it mean that God in power by the Spirit is strengthening our insides? What does that mean? Well, verse 17, it means that Christ is dwelling there more and more by faith. Textually, that's clear. But logically, that raises a question, I think. What does it mean to pray for Christ to dwell in a Christian by faith? Doesn't he already dwell in a Christian by faith? What does that mean? Yes, in a way, of course he does. That's the Emmanuel that we were singing about. That's what's been made possible now, that when you get saved, Christ moves in. He does dwell in you by faith. Paul knows that. But what's being talked about here is actually something a little different. The word dwell in is a stronger word than just be in. The effect is one of inhabiting, of making a home, of fashioning a habitation, if you will. Christ has moved into every true believer. By faith, that's true. But as this process for which Paul is praying, this strengthening of the inner man, as it continues on, as God answers that prayer and puts power on us and renews us on the inside, something starts to happen. It's as if Christ is grabbing more and more of us. He's taking hold 
and in a powerful way changing things. Picture perhaps a house guest who comes and is, is confined to the living room. Now he's starting to act like he actually runs the joint, which is appropriate because he should. He owns the whole place. His authority is spreading out. There's a story written about this that some of you may know. My heart, Christ's home. It's helpful in picturing that. My heart is Christ's home. And he moves in and then he spreads out. And he starts to renovate the whole place. When a person becomes a Christian, there is a necessary bowing of the knee to Christ's lordship. You can't become a Christian without bowing to him. But all of us have a long way to go towards that goal at the end of verse 19, towards the goal of being filled with the fullness of God. We have a long way to go. We all have thinking and desires and actions that are not fully conformed to the image of Christ. All of us have hearts and minds that have not been completely gripped by chapters 1 to 3, all the content there and the ramifications of all that. We all have a long way to go, and so we should constantly pray, God, come in power on me. Take control of me more and more and more. Fashion me to be a habitation in which Christ dwells and is pleased to dwell more and more so should be all of our prayers. I pray that for myself, not as much as I should, but more than I have in the past, I pray that for myself because every time that I actually stop and look at me, I'm sobered and appalled by what I see. What remains in me is sobering and it is alarming to me. I've been helped by, I've been helped to think about myself by something that Jonathan Edwards wrote. As he considered his own heart and his own sin, the great pastor and theologian said, My sin is infinite upon infinite. It's a man who knew himself. And that is far from common practice in our churches today. I've tried to make that more my own practice, to look at myself and to see my infinite upon infinite sin, not so that I'd get all depressed and down, but so that I'd find motivation to cry out, Lord, send power on me to renovate me so that Christ would live here and be pleased to live here and own more of me on the inside. Seeing yourself like that will motivate this kind of prayer, this first request. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for your church body. Pray that for me. If you don't pray it at all for anybody else, pray it for me, please. That I would see that and that God would move on me like that. But I hope you want some of that too and that you would pray for yourself like that. God, send your strengthening power to me to make me Christ's home. The second request begins in the middle of verse 17 goes on through verse 19. Summarized, it is, God, would you strengthen us to understand Christ's love? 
Would you strengthen us to understand Christ's love? Now remember, these two things are not entirely separated. Remember this little staircase. They're different points, but the first one leads to the second one. The first request leads there as it, as it is answered and as God is working on us to fashion us to be more Christ's home, something happens. Each of us individually are rooted and grounded in a building of love. It's got two different uh, phrases there. One agricultural, the rooted, and one architectural, the grounded. But both of them are the same thing. They're planted in love or based in love. What he's talking about there, I'm convinced, is, is the love that we have for one another. As God is moving in us and changing us, what happens is that we become that people of peace that he was talking about in chapter 2. We form a community of love, and that's where we're rooted. And then follow the logic into verse 18. With all these saints, all of us together in this community of love, God begins to teach us the incomprehensible. Yes, somehow it is possible for us all by ourselves to learn about the love of God for us, but in a unique way. Again, we see the emphasis falling on together with all the saints. The body is the place where we learn this. We can learn things elsewhere too, but the body is where Paul is, is focused. It's where he's thinking. Here together in this group, Father, would you give them strengthening power to grasp what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ for them. God, would you do that? I would imagine that it is not news to you. This verse is talking about Christians, the love that Christ has for Christians. And if you're a Christian, I imagine it is not new to you that Jesus loves you. Probably heard that before. But Paul seems to think that it just might be news to you. That you might actually even need the power of God to actually understand that. It's, it, isn't, it does not take the power of God to memorize, Jesus loves me. It takes the power of God to believe it. Especially at times when life is hard. And things come your way that are at least challenging and sometimes devastating. At those times, it is hard to actually believe Jesus loves you. God is for you. It really is true. He has vast, immeasurable love for you. That's the point of all those dimensions there. How do you ever come to the end of this and this? You don't. He is vast, immeasurable, unfathomable even love for you. Oh, this should generate something in us. Grasping this should generate something in us. It should put calm in your heart amidst fear and anxiety. It should put some security and some peace there. It's not easy. I think that life probably screams louder at us than this truth. That's why we need the power. But if the power of God would fall on us and convince us of His love for us, then we could look at life through the love of Christ. And that should generate something in you. Peace and calm and hope and confidence. It doesn't mean bad things will not happen. Bad things will certainly happen. 
Christ says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Not take heart, the world is your friend. He has overcome the world and he is for you. Rest in that. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. Not a thing. We need the power, though, the power of God to understand Christ's love for us. And I would also add at this point to properly understand Christ's love for us. Because of the times that we live in and the way our culture is working, I need to throw in at least one caution here. I'm only going to mention one thing. But it is important to note that we must properly understand Christ's love for us. All around us, we have a culture that is very convinced that we should work at seeing ourselves as lovely. That our primary goal almost should be to lift ourselves up and to highly esteem ourselves. And what happens when our fallen hearts grab a hold of that kind of thinking is that a twisting happens. And the gracious gift of God, the marvelous doctrine of God's love for us, almost becomes a right, an expectation. Of course God must love me. I'm me. Look at me. Careful with that. Be careful with that. Don't let your heart put yourself back at the center of the gospel, back at the center of God's world. It's out there. It's, it's in the churches too. I recently came upon a statement that I hope I misunderstood. I don't think I did, but I hope I did. Or maybe there was more to the story. The statement said, God made you to love you. And it actually quoted Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 as support for it. I was alarmed, and as I said, I hope I misunderstood now, apart from the fact that I think that the in love there in 4 and 5 was misapplied, it certainly failed to read on to verse 6 for the praise of His glorious grace. The creation does not exist to be loved. The creation exists and some of it has been redeemed that God might be glorified. And beneath that, certainly is this glorious doctrine of the love of Christ for us that is wide and long and high and deep. It is certainly true, but it is beneath the overall umbrella of to the glory of God. Guard your heart. Protect yourself from this false belief of putting yourself back in the middle and expecting and demanding God's love. Instead, the love of God should leave us in awe that He would love us. It should leave us confident that He is for us. He has proven that at the cross. He has given us His Son. Will He not also along with Him give us all things? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. This is all in Romans 8. And the love of God should then lead us on to continue on in Romans 8 to become more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The next verse. The love of Christ should enable us to march out to not just play defense but to march out as conquerors and say I can conquer sin because of the love of Christ for me I can actually look at what sin offers and can say is that all you've got I have the love of Christ why would I turn my back on that and take you off take you up on your offer 
The love of Christ enables us to be more than conquerors. It should leave us in awe. This is what we need the power of God for. The power of God to see, to understand the love of Christ for us properly. Paul prays these things, these two landings towards the end goal of filled to all the fullness of God. Christ-likeness, God-likeness. You kind of want to say to Paul, why don't you aim a little higher, Paul? He's going to pray to God and say, God, make them like you. We should pray like that. We should pray, pray, pray for God's strengthening, enabling power to come on us, to change us on the inside, to teach us of His love for us, to make us like Him. These are high goals. Thank God that He is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or even imagine. It's the kind of God that He is, rich in glory and motivated to do it. But He must do it. So you must pray. Let me close this sermon, the first half of this book, and actually our worship service by having you all stand up and read together the great doxology that closes out this chapter. It's going to be put up on the screen. Now we're going to read this at a slow pace so that you can think about the words. I just rattle it off, but think about these words. I'll start and follow along with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.